Where's where's the soloist of that last piece? Where's where is she? The Hebrew was perfect. I have an application here for you for the School of Sacred Music at Hebrew Union College. We can use you. But that was absolutely beautiful. Uh, Joe, who, where's Joe? Where is, uh, who is the composer of that last piece? I think I know, but I'm not sure. Janowski, yes. Yeah. One of the most beautiful pieces. And he was one of the master choir and choral directors and composers of the, uh, uh, certainly of the 20th century in Jewish music and worked out of one of the wonderful congregations in Boston, uh, Temple Israel of Brookline, Massachusetts, and Janowski's works, and it was just perfect. It was, all the music was perfect. But I have a, uh, at least an extra vote on the last, on the same Shalom, because it was done so beautifully, and for all of my gratitude, it, the music has been extraordinary, and I understand that that's not unusual. I want to, uh, it's not unusual for this uh, great institution. Um, I want to publicly apologize to Tom for uh, picking on him the last two nights, and uh, I uh, will try very hard not to permit my evil impulses to get the better of me tonight. I see him right there. Have you noticed he's been moving around? Have you, have you noticed that? It has been a pleasure studying with you today at the Disciples' Lunch. Back up for a minute. The lunches have been wonderful. The desserts have been terrific. And uh, your good Reverend Biggs has been making sure that I have not missed the pie, the strawberry shortcake, and uh, has made sure that uh, my sweet tooth has been well taken care of. But that's been wonderful. But at the disciples' lunch today, I was hit by some very challenging questions. And it is wonderful to see a group of men and women with such an intense and challenging and thoughtful relationship with study. That's what makes us, us. And this church should be very proud of itself. Now, I know pride can be uh, a sin somewhere along the line. I don't think you're there, but I think you have good reason to be so proud of yourselves and everything that you have done. All of you have made this visit one I shall never forget, and we've had a chance, some of us, to begin relationships uh, which I pray uh, will uh, continue for many years to come. And also, I now know how to steal ideas from Reverend Biggs by watching the website constantly for his archived sermons. I see, rabbis can't do that because uh, generally after a few years, you pull out of one you've used before. But here, you've always got to be doing new ones. So that's, that's wonderful. Tonight, we're going to take another look at Moses. We've talked about Moses... 
bringing the notion of a God of redemptive power and salvation. We've talked a little bit about Moses, about commanding the people to become a kingdom of priests and a holy people, which is a mission you and I share as people devoted in faith to God. Tonight, I want to talk about something else that comes up in the text. When God reveals God's attributes to Moses, we see an interesting little piece which often we overlook in reading the text. We're going to study together tonight the story of Moses' second chance and how God forgivingly, lovingly enables Moses to return to his relationship with God and the Israelites forgiven and blessed. And so we come to the third thing that Moses helps teach us about God, and that is that God is a God ultimately of forgiveness, not of retributive power. And we're going to see how that works and through that story. So we're going to look at the first shot at it and how it failed. Then we're going to see the second attempt at the commandments and how somehow this remains the case. Now, it's interesting that the rabbis truly took this very seriously. In their discussions in the academies in the first and second centuries of the Christian era, the rabbis said, when you deal with an old person who has forgotten what he once knew or she once knew, treat them with kindness and care because in the Ark of the Covenant there were two sets of tablets, the first broken fragments and the second whole fragment. And when you remember that brokenness is part of our lives, and yet healing and forgiveness can come, you must practice that with regard to the aged in the community. Now, what's fascinating is the Bible doesn't say that. That in that Ark of the Covenant were two sets of tablets. But it makes sense. Because... We don't know what happens to the first set. Now, these are sacred, sacred tablets. Sacred. And if they were sacred, they had to be treated with sanctity. After all, these tablets were written directly by God. I'm not going to tell you about the second set yet. We're going to try to figure that out together. There were two sets. And it's important for us to take a look at what happens in that context. Because the God of forgiveness, so preached by Jesus and taught by Jesus, has its roots right here. 
I'm not talking about the full development of it as Jesus developed it, but has its roots here. And you know the word for forgiveness in Hebrew. Do any of you know that word? It's rachamim. You have heard Muslims call God Rahman. It's the same word. Rachamim, Rahman. And many, many Muslims have that name of Rahman. It's interesting. They have incorporated it. But to me, what was always fascinating is we get so carried away in thinking of God only in masculine terms. Rachamim comes from the root Rechem. It is a totally female characteristic. What is Rechem? The womb. The Hebrew and Arabic word for forgiveness comes from the root, the womb. And God's ultimate power, which is to forgive, and to embrace, is a feminine characteristic in the mind and minds of the Hebrew language and of the Torah itself. So yes, is it weighted as we've discovered on the male side? True. But is it only male attributes? No. And the most powerful one, which is forgiveness and the ability to have a second chance, is considered a woman's attributes. The love of a mother love of a mother is seen as God's love. Isn't that amazing? So please don't feel, ladies, that you're totally left out. In fact, if anything, you're exalted. The level is raised. Moses had to learn that. Moses had to learn that. So we're going to take a look at that today. So if you will, if you have your Bibles with you, take a look at chapter 31 of the book of Exodus. And what we're going to try to understand, now one of these is working, I remember. Both are? You made that decision at the administrative board today? I mean, I just want to know. That's right. In my congregation, that would have taken three board meetings to get that. I do want you to know that. That's not... Uh... All right, so we're going to talk about what happens the first time around. Then we're going to talk about the second time and the differences between the two because the hints at what it takes to gain forgiveness and to do what is called Tishuvah which means turning and returning, will be taught to us by the second one. Not by the first, but by the second one. In between, two things are going to happen. You're going to meet this. You know what that stands for? That's an ancient Hebrew letter. It's the first letter of the alphabet, Aleph. Alpha comes from Aleph, by the way. And if you look at this, you know if you flip it over, you have your A. See? You see your A? But this really means ox, originally. See the horns of the ox? 
we're going to talk about the golden calf a little bit and why that would have been the natural symbol if they were going to need a symbol that they would have made. And there have been many golden calves found in the ancient Near East. But remember those when we were talking about mysticism with the disciples today? I said every letter has a numerical identity. What's the numerical identity for Aleph? A. One. Again, it would be a natural. But we'll get to that in a minute. Then we're going to learn about something that God says about God. Not what we say about God, but what God says about God. Now that self-revelation is very unique in the Bible. God doesn't talk much about God. God talks about what God's going to do. God talks about consequences in the text that we have. But God doesn't say much about God. But in what we're going to look at tonight, and it's all part of the same set of verses. Who is this God that you and I believe in? What are God's essential attributes and essential ways? So essential that to this day, on Jewish festivals, these words are sung when you take the Torah out of the ark, heightened moment of the service, you know what an ark is, right? That's the, that's the place in the synagogue where the Torah scrolls are kept. And that reminds us of the Ark of the Covenant that was carried through the wilderness. So we take that out. And on the Day of Atonement, the day where we ask for forgiveness, every time we confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, Jews still use those words. To this day, reaching out to God's self-definition. So that's what we're going to look at. So are we all ready? You got your Bibles out? Okay. I'm going to read. The Lord spoke to Moses in chapter 31, telling him, I have singled out this man, Betzalel, and his job will be to help you design the tent the sanctuary through which my presence will be made known to the Jewish people, and that's where the people will offer their sacrifices. Then in verse 12, God says to Moses, no meetings of the board on Sunday. In other words, lest they think that building the church or the synagogue or the tent because it's a symbol of God's presence is so important, it should take precedence over everything, Moses says, not on the Sabbath. Not on the Sabbath. So God says there, speak to the Israelite people and say, nevertheless, you must keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you through the ages, that you may know that I, God, have consecrated you. You shall keep the Sabbath for it is a day holy for you. And then in the last verse, remember Moses is supposedly up on Sinai again. Yesterday we talked of his going up and down in that marathon of climbing and descending. When he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, 
God gave Moses the two tablets of the pact, stone tablets inscribed with the finger of God. Now, don't forget that verse. Because who made the tablets? God. Who inscribed them? God. We're going to see a different story in a few minutes. I'm helping you out by cluing you to that. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered against Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who shall go before us. For that man Moses who brought us from the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron said to them, So take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. The people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This he took from them and cast in a mold and made it into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron announced, Tomorrow shall be a Chag, a festival of God. Early next day, the people offered up burnt offerings and brought sacrifices. They sat down to eat and drink. And then they rose to dance. Remember what I told you last night? Dancing was part of religious celebration. Now, first of all, why did they choose a golden calf? Because there's a real question here about were they trying to create an idol or were they were trying to create something that would give a visible representation? We don't know. But we do know this. The A, the letter Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet, represents an ox. Its horns represent a number of times in the text that, uh, that some of the great leaders are portrayed as wild oxen, you know, with these goring horns. But these horns had another function. Do any of you know? How many of you remember the hunchback of Notre Dame? Okay. Remember what he was screaming from way on top of the cathedral when they tried to come in? What is he saying? Sanctuary. Sanctuary. The ancient Israelites had altars, which you can see in museums. Those altars had horns on them. The altar was like this, and the edge of the altar was not, it was not a sharp horn. It was something that you could take hold of, like this. And if you had accidentally killed somebody, and you needed refuge and protection, because in the ancient Near East, and we still know among certain tribes in the Arabian Peninsula to this day, if somebody kills somebody in your family, even accidentally, your obligation is to kill them. And it's called the blood avenger. It's not a Jewish thing. It's not an Arab thing. It's simply a practice from the ancient world. But in order to protect that person, that person was able to run to a shrine, take hold of the horns of the altar, and never be removed. 
until he had a fair hearing. And if the blood avenger was still out after him, he lived in a Levitical town or village which was protecting protection for him through the rest of his life. Some of you who have been in Hawaii may have seen their city of refuge. They have a city of refuge there too. Practiced by the peoples of the Pacific. Next time you're in Hawaii, you should take a look at it. It's a, there are some remains of that village still there. So the, the fact that it's a horned calf, the fact that it equals the number one, the fact that it was refuge and security, it would make sense that that would be the symbol. But it was a forbidden symbol, nonetheless. Nonetheless. So the people have this golden calf, and they're doing what they were taught to do in Egypt and among their tribal clans. They are having their festival. So God says to Moses, hurry down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted basely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I enjoined them. And this is what they're saying. And what I told you last night, the Lord said further, I see the stiff-necked people. Let me be. Get away from me. So I can really punish them for what they've done. Now go down. But before he went down, Moses prays for the people. Turn back, O God, from your anger and renounce the plan to punish your people. Remember I said, a religious leader is one who prays for his people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and Jacob, how you swore to them and said, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring the whole land of which I spoke. And God renounced the punishment, and it's only then that Moses let him alone. You know, like your parents were really getting angry, and they said, get out of my way now, or get out of the way now, because I'm so angry, I'm going to punish so-and-so and so-and-so, and you're in my way, and leave me alone, and don't plead. Moses wouldn't let go. Thereupon Moses turned and went down from the mountain, bearing the two tablets of the pact, tablets inscribed on both their surfaces. By the way, the language in the Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille on the tablets is not correct script for ancient Hebrew, but that's another story. Tablets inscribed on both. I don't know who the rabbinic advisor was, but no good. All right. Tablets inscribed on both their surfaces. They were inscribed on the one and on the other. The tablets were God's work, probably separate. They weren't the way we do it. You know, we look, make it look like it's one set of tablets. In synagogues today, uh, the curves at the top and connected, they were not connected. There were two separate tablets, probably written on both sides. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing incised upon the tablets. And as soon as Moses comes near the camp, he becomes so angry. What does he do? He hurls the tablets down. And then he takes the calf, grinds it, and makes a, I guess, one of these new healthy juices for the people to drink. And then he goes after Aaron and everything else, and then he tells them, you've been a great, you've done a great sin. All right, so let's take a look at the first set. 
Who wrote the first set? Who created the first set of tablets? God. To whom did they belong? They were being given to the Israelite people. So they certainly didn't belong to Moses. Or did they? So let's say this was God's gift to the Israelites. And this man, Moses, gets so angry that he shatters the tablets. Wow. Who gave him permission? Did God say, shatter the tablets? No. Did God say, you have my permission to shatter the tablets? No. One of the danger of dangers of leadership sometimes is when we make decisions rashly that aren't ours to make. Moses was the messenger, not the author. Moses was the messenger, not the creator of the tablets. And his job was to bring the tablets with the commandments to the people. And what does he do? He says, you're a bunch of bums. I don't want anything to do with you. <laughs> Goodbye. So what's our problem? First of all, we don't have the, tab the, the, the tablets. They're broken. Second of all, we have somebody who did something wrong. Out of righteous indignation, he'd given so much of his life already to the people. Out of concern, out of embarrassment, after all, when your people do something badly, aren't you embarrassed? Reverend Biggs has been so attentive and so caring. This has to be right. That has to be right. This has to be right. It's good that it didn't happen all that way. Now, I'm saying it's good because you know what it teaches us? It teaches us, it teaches us that we are all human and we all make mistakes and we are all imperfect. Even this guy made a big mistake. I'll tell you a true story. I have a granddaughter. My oldest granddaughter is a girl named Megan. And I was visiting her in Cincinnati and her parents. And there I am having a great time. I was either watching TV, you know, a very important thing like watching television or something else. And I had forgotten a commitment I made to her. She says, Zadie, the Jewish word for grandpa. She says, Zadie, when you're finished talking, I want to speak with you. <laughs> if you knew the Zimmerman women you would know I was in real trouble. <laughs> this is a six-year-old. I said, okay, let's do it now. She said, I didn't say that. 
I said, when you are finished talking, you and I have something to talk about. I gulped, finished what I had to do, and then I said, all right, Megan, I'm here. She said, please take my hand. We're going into the other room. Daughter of a psychologist, don't you get it? I mean, I just want you to know that. Boy, was I being worked over at this point. So she takes, takes my hand, walks me out. She says, you please sit here. I sat down. She said, please don't interrupt me. Till I'm, you can only speak when I'm finished. I already felt so, for whatever, I wasn't sure, but I was so, felt so properly reproved, I didn't know what to do, right? Okay? All right, just, just checking. Now, and she said, you know, Zadie, you promised me that after you finished whatever you were doing, we were going to play. What time is it, Zadie? I told her the time. Clocks, clocks, <laughs> clocks. Then she said to me, you know, you made a very bad choice. It was the end of the conversation at that point. I mean, totally beaten, humiliated, embarrassed, forced to ask forgiveness. I did everything I had to do. And I looked at my daughter, the psychologist. I said, do you know what she did to me, your daughter? I'm no Moses. But Moses, you made a very bad choice. Very bad choice. God at this point is so angry. And Moses really doesn't know what to do. And then, of course, plagues come. All the kinds of stuff that could be done to punish the people. But after a little bit, after the plague is over, chapter 33, God says to Moses, look, Get out of here. I want you to resume your journey. They don't have the tablets, do they? Yet. They're going to resume the journey without this sacred stuff. And I want you to take the people because I made a promise to their ancestors that I'm going to give it to you. But I'm not going. Reminds me of my mother. I hope you have a good time tonight. I'm not coming. I told you it's in the genetics structuring of the family. I'm not coming. Why? What happened? Did we do something wrong? I really don't want to talk about it. You know, this kind of thing. And, and, but we eventually find out we did something wrong and we're sorry. We didn't mean it. Come. It wouldn't be the same without you. God says, I'm not going. I'm not coming. I'm going to send an angel. And even though some of you think angel's the highest level, in this case, it's second dog. It's down, it's a little less than the one that was supposed to go with them. Now Moses, we know, won't stand for that. The people themselves 
would not. And God says, I'm not going with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I'll destroy you because you're going to do this again and again and again. So, change your clothes, don't be so fancy. And they were stripped of their finery from Mount Horeb, which is another name for Sinai. And Moses, in starting in verse 12, says, Look, God, you say to me, take this people, but you haven't told me much about yourself. I want to know more about you. And now you say you've singled, you said you singled me out by name, and I've gained your favor. Now, if I've truly gained your favor, let me know something about you. I want to know more about you. And God said, I'll go in the lead and I will lighten your burden. Moses says, if you don't go in the lead, do not make us leave. Because people will say, what happened to your God? So God says, okay, and I'll also do the thing that you have asked, for you have gained my favor. Moses said, dear God, let me behold your presence. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name. What was the name yesterday? Yahweh, yud Hey vav Hey. that I will be what I shall be. And I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you this name and the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show. But you can't see my face, for you may never see my face and live. So God says, come, there's a place right near me. There's a cleft in the rock. I'm going to put you there. Station yourself. And as I pass by, I will shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And then God says what? Chapter 34. Difference number one. Anyone know? What's that? Who, what does Moses have to do? He had Moses now has to make the tablets. What else does he have to do? Can't hear you louder. Well, it's, it, God will write on them, but what does Moses have to do? Moses got to carry them up the mountain. Before, Moses took a nice walk up, had a nice meal on the way, had a meeting, had a meal, got up there, terrific. This time, he's carrying two heavy tablets. And this time, he's carving them. Now, you already know this is a prelude to forgiveness. You can't have forgiveness unless you own up to what you did and try to make it right. Remember, Moses, you made a bad choice. Zadie, you made a bad choice. 
You've got work to do, Zadie. You've got some forgiveness work to do in order to be forgiven. You just don't go in and say you're sorry doesn't work. I'm so sorry. I did. You go on TV and say before millions, I made a mistake. Thank you very much. I'm sorry, I apologize. Thank you very much. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Forgiveness is a dual behavior path. You want God to forgive? You want the wife to forgive you? You want Nike to forgive you? You've got work to do, man. We all do. First, you've got to tell the truth. You did it. God says to him, carve out the tablets like the first set that you, Moses, broke. It's very clear there that God's saying, I didn't tell you to break them. They weren't yours to break. And now... You're going to take a walk up a mountain. I don't know about you. That little walk up with my seven, with, because of the seven-year-old who told me what I did, was one of the hardest walks up a mountain I ever took. I haven't stopped feeling guilty about it. And it was flat ground I was walking on. Next time you do something wrong, think about it. Think about it. I have to think about it. I, as every human being does, I've done my full share of these things. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you. You know what the hardest part is? Facing up to it. The, harder part, the hardest part is saying, and now what I'm going to do? What do they say? It's not that you fall, it's what do you do after you fall? All right, Moses, you took a fall. Now what do you do? But Moses wants reassurance. He wants to make sure that he's not walking into a trap. I don't blame him. So you say to your spouse, well, if I... If I do what I think you want me to do, will it be okay? And she says, I knew your mother. And she wasn't that easy to get around. Or whatever. Okay, you've got a job to do. Tishuva. Turning is tough. It's hard. It's facing yourself in that mirror. seeing what you've done. Remember in Don Quixote, Man of La Mancha, that wonderful Broadway play, and that part where they all turn the mirrors on him, the shields become like mirrors, and he sees the truth, and he faints away. It's not easy to face the truth. He makes so many justifications. 
You know what our worst justification is? I'm only human. That's what being human means? I'm only human means I have a chance to come back. But that's no excuse. And that's no justification. Not even for Moses. You got angry? Tough noogies. Now start climbing up the mountain. Now start making amends. You had a people that depended on you. And in a moment, a teaching moment, where you could have said to them, you have sinned, but you can be forgiven. He destroyed God's words and God's tablets. And in our anger, we do things like that. And then we say, boy, if I could only take the words back. There was a man who once came to his rabbi and said, High Holy Days are coming. I've got to ask forgiveness. I've got to, I've got to make peace with God. But I have been spreading rumors and killing reputations. I've said all these things. Rabbi said, don't worry. Take a feather pillow. Make a hole in the feather pillow. And walk through the streets. Did that? And of course, you walk through the streets with a feather pillow. What happens to the feathers? Blow away. Comes back to the rabbi. He says, now what do I do? He says, go gather the feathers. You can't, can you? You can never gather all the feathers. You can't take backwards. You can say, I'm sorry all you want. That doesn't make it okay. You've got work to do. But before he does the work, God says to him the following. And these are the, some of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. I'm only speaking for the Jewish Bible, not the New Testament. Please keep that in mind. Okay? So Moses carves the two tablets of stone like the first. And early in the morning he went up on Mount Sinai. Who else went up a mountain early in the morning? Anybody here from the high school senior class? They know. Abraham goes up early in the morning. As the Lord had commanded him, taking the two stone tablets with him. God comes down in a cloud, stands with him and says, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, Y-H-V-R-W-H, which is the name of God associated with becoming, redemption, and now with forgiveness. And God passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. You listening, Moses? Abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but God does not remit all punishment. There are consequences to what you've done. If we pollute the earth, saying I'm sorry doesn't work. you got to do something about it. And if we're warming the environment, whatever your position on it, 
saying, oh, doesn't work. you got to do something about it. So there is iniquity of parents upon children and children's children. By the way, the prophets reject that. Do you know that? This one statement. Actually, Jeremiah and Ezekiel say, no longer shall they say in Israel, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth have been set on edge. One of the beauties of, of uh, Hebrew scriptures is that later writers have no problem telling earlier writers that they did something wrong. <laughs> and when Jeremiah and Ezekiel are speaking to an exiled community, they don't want to say you're going to continue suffering because of the sins of your parents. That's why Ezekiel says every person stands accountable for his or her own sin. Take a look at that chapter, one of the great chapters of Ezekiel. And that's the point. But the point here is that, look, there are consequences to what your children do suffer because of you. If you haven't taken care of yourself, or if you die too young because you're not taking care of yourself. Sometimes you couldn't do anything about it. But if something happens that happens to you, and or you enact that brings difficulty on later generations, you're responsible for that. But the promise here is what? Is that if you are willing to turn a thousand generations of kindness. That, that's not an exact count. I have to be careful. We have a former chief financial officer here, right here in the room with me. Now, be very careful what he means by that for an awfully long time, all right? For a long time, there's going to be a lot of kindness. But you've got to do some work. Teshuvah is not simply an act of a grace that is unmerited. It's an act of grace because God can say, I don't believe you. Just as Megan said, next time don't do that, Zadie. And she was right. The test is in the pudding, isn't it? Not simply in the sorry, but the next time that it comes, a chance comes, an opportunity arises for us to act differently. That's the sign. The sign is not simply saying, I'm sorry, or I won't do it again. The sign is not doing it again. When you have a sane chance to do it, not doing it again. Teshuvah means that you take responsibility for yourself, that you are individually accountable for your behavior, and if you want forgiveness for what you've done, start climbing that mountain. Indicate and show how you've changed. Ask forgiveness from those who've harmed. You know, Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, you are not permitted in Jewish law to ask God's forgiveness till you've made peace with your fellow human being. When you've done that first, then you come to me. And the Talmud says so, and it's if you look at the prayer books for the High Holy Days, the printer made a wise choice in reminding us of that. cannot come to God for forgiveness when you have to face another fellow human being first. And therefore, the Day of Atonement, the rabbis teach, does not atone for the sins between 
human beings only for the sins between human beings and God. Because between human beings, you got to make it right. There's a wonderful German phrase. Wieder gut zu machen. You've got to make it right. Grace is in God's willingness to forgive. Teshuvah is what you and I have to do to get to God's grace. And crying on television. Anybody. And it's, it's, I'm not picking on any one person now because it seems every day there's another person crying on television. And not taking responsibility and not changing one's behavior. That will not get you anywhere according to biblical tradition. So Moses bows low to the ground and he says, If I have gained your favor, God, please go with us. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your own. Isn't that what these days of Lent are about for you? That's what I've learned from Reverend Biggs. When he said, when I first gave the topic to him, he said, that's what Lent's about. Return, change, asking forgiveness. Moses is just starting it here. But he's already carried the stones up there. He's carried the tablets. He's done the first part. It's not over yet. And then in verse 28, and he was there with God 40 days and 40 nights. He ate no bread and drank no water. Tom, read loudly the next verse. You're my man. I depend on you. Okay, just that next part of that verse. Verse 28. He ate no bread and drank no water. And then, nice and loud. I know you've got a good voice. Fire chiefs always have good voices. Great. Who's he? We don't know. You know why we don't know? Hebrew doesn't have capital letters. And we're stuck. This is one of the most important verses in the whole text. And I can't tell you with certitude what that means. Was it God who wrote them? Or this time, in order to gain forgiveness, Moses had to write the words with his life energy, with his life soul, from the deepest parts of who he was. I had a, uh, a calculus teacher, great Irishman, who once said, you pays your money and you takes your choice. I don't know which one it is. You can feel free to choose either because Hebrew has no capital letters. Now, the translator says he with a little h, right? But that's an interpretation. Hebrew doesn't say that. Hebrew says he. But 
But I think that's the mystery and the gift. The mystery and the gift is that somehow between Moses and God, between yours truly and those I've offended, I once gave a sermon on Yom Kippur asking forgiveness for those whom I might have offended that year. Something happens between the person seeking forgiveness and the forgiver. So that maybe it was Moses who wrote the letters, but it's God involved with that writing totally and completely, whether God wrote them or not. During this period of Lent, I'm not finished yet, so don't breathe too easily. Soon, but not yet. I want you to think about that. So as you come to Good Friday, you don't mind my preaching a bit. Okay. You come to Good Friday and to the dawn of that great day of Easter. The sun dawns. You can say, I climbed the mountain. You see, the beauty of Teshuvah is, the beauty of what they call repentance, but that's such a word, I don't even understand the word too well of repentance, but I do understand the word Teshuvah because it needs to turn. What I do is I climb the mountain of the jungle of my soul. And there's a lot of jungle in there. And what I do is I change the order of time. Here's what I mean. When you and I look at time in a line, it's past, present, and future. The language of turning of Teshuvah is future, past, present. Looking at the future, at the person I still so passionately want to be. Looking at my little granddaughter with her looking at all those I might have harmed and whom I want to be at one again with. Looking at the future, I look at the past and I transform it by my behavior in the present. I start with the future, destiny, not fate, vision, not fate, I come to where I was, knowing what I did, admitting what I did, working to change what I did, breaking the tablets, having given up a gift freely, graciously given, carrying them up the mountain of the jungle of my soul. And changing the way I am now in the present. Religious time is future, past, and present, not past, present, and future. That's what Easter should be for you, too. When you come before God on that day, and the promise of Christian faith in which you believe, and you're able to say, I stand before you, God, 
open, transparent. And I have done the following to make shalom, to make wholeness and peace out of the fragments of my life. Now, just very quickly to pull it to a close, you've been very patient. You all know the story of a, of a king, that old story that he's told about a king who had this beautiful, beautiful emerald. And he didn't want ever to display it because he knew that if he displayed it, someone might scratch it. But they once convinced him at a party he was giving, show us, show us that extraordinary stone you have, that gem, that emerald, show it to us, let us see this emerald. And he brought it out. And he noticed when they left that there was a scratch on it. Gems that are scratched aren't worth very much, are they? Didn't know what to do, so one of his wise counselors said, well, why don't we call in an artist, someone who works with gems. Let him take a look at the scratch. And the artist looked at the scratch and he began to draw the stem of a beautiful rose. And on that emerald was the most beautiful, beautiful rose. Scratch is still there, isn't it? But look what you've done with the scratch. You see, that's why, remember I said the rabbis taught this lesson, they're both the broken tablets and the new set in the ark. You never get rid of the scratches, I'm sorry. You can use Botox, moral Botox. I'm not making any uh, statements beyond that, right? All right? You can use whatever. When it comes to morality, the scratch is always there. The question is, what do you do with the scratch? You draw a rose, you transform it. Looking at the future, what do you do to the past to live fully in the present? Moses learned his lesson, didn't he? And out of what was? A terrible catastrophe. Not just a scratch. This guy really did something, made a very bad choice. He created an eternal rose because he was willing to carry the tablets up the mountain. I know a lot of you work out. And you know in these spinning classes or whatever else you do, I'm scared that I see these guys on these bicycles and gals on these bicycles, they're sweating. I'm sure I need an ambulance for them, let alone for me, looking at them. Climb that mountain. One of the hardest mountains you'll climb. Physical mountains are nothing like moral mountains. Keeping the future in front of you. And then, you transform the past into the rose of the present. When you've done that, so you can't enter the land of promise. When life comes to its end, you can do what Moses did. The very end of Deuteronomy.
take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 34. Moses went up from the steps of Moab to Mount Nebo to the summit of Pisgah opposite Jericho, and God showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, Al-Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the whole land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And God said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, I will assign it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you can't cross there. So Moses, the servant of God, died there in the, in the land of Moab. But it's the Hebrew is fascinating. It says, Alpi Adonai. Some people translate that by the command of God or word of God. But P is also mouth. And so the rabbis taught. Moses earned with his life the ultimate gift. He died with the kiss from God. The kiss that gives us our life, and at the end, our breath goes back to God who gave it. Dear Moses, very human, but taught us by Teshuvah how to save the people. May your Lent be a good one. And as I thank you for your hospitality and your love and your care in these wonderful days, I ask God's blessing on you. This is not to take away from your blessing. It's, you know, it's like there's a Old Testament and there's a New Testament. You'll have your chance in a minute, right? All right. But I don't know if you know this blessing. It's in Genesis. It's when Jacob's father-in-law, who wasn't too nice to Jacob, it was Jacob's uncle, Laban, saying goodbye to Jacob and Jacob's wives and children. He says, Yitzef Adonai Beniu Venecha Kini Sater Ish Mereyehu God watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. God bless.